This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about going the extra mile. And I'm not talking about distance. These stories are about times when you felt compelled to go above and beyond what's expected of you or even what's actually needed. Sometimes we go above and beyond because there just doesn't seem to be a way out of it. You know, like when you get roped into helping your friend move because you didn't think of an excuse fast enough and now you're building their IKEA furniture on your Saturday. And I mean, sometimes we do it because we think it has social benefits, like if you're gunning for that work promotion or you want someone to like you more. But here's the thing. Research found that the social benefits you get from going the extra mile is actually a myth. A recent study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology found that people didn't actually report more trust after someone overcompensated or, in other words, went the extra mile. In fact, when they were on the receiving end of this overcompensation, compared to equal compensation, overcompensation evoked more conflicting thoughts and more sense-making processes in the mind of the receiver. In other words, going the extra mile just backfired. So, I mean, I'll probably always put in extra effort when it comes to, like, my close family and friends, because I love them, duh. But now I, and you, have a scientific reason to say no to helping those acquaintances move. So yay. And also, you're welcome. Anyway, our first story is from Jack Walsh. It was recorded at Waller's Coffee Shop in Atlanta in August 2022. The theme that night was the power of words. Not long after I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I went with my family to Universal Studios theme park in Orlando, Florida. And when I say it that way, it sounds kind of grim, like maybe I was fighting to hold on to life just long enough to fulfill my wish of experiencing Shrek the Ride or something, but it's it's not that at all. I have a benign tumor in the third ventricle, which is right in the middle of my brain. And instead of peeling my forehead down and cutting through the middle to get it out, like the neurosurgeon thought he was going to have to do, he instead installed a cerebral shunt, which is a device that would drain off any fluid that might otherwise build up and run the risk of killing me in my sleep. And then three months later, my wife and I took our girls to to do the whole Harry Potter merchandise extravaganza thing in Orlando because we had plans to do that anyway. The two really had nothing to do with each other, at least not at first. While, see, while we were in Orlando, we stayed at a really nice resort that we could afford because we agreed to submit to a timeshare presentation. 
And I'm not sure if you've ever done one of those or if you know anything about timeshares. It's, it's like an extended warranty, had sex with a pyramid scheme, and then gave birth to a whole lot of condos that they have to find a bunch of people to adopt. And I'm kind of ashamed to admit that this is not the first one of these that I've been through. Um, a, a year or so before this, we took the girls to Washington, D.C., and we sat through the presentation for this kind of timeshare program where instead of having access to one property, you um, got what they called club points that you could use to take trips to different resorts they had in countries all over the world. Obviously, you know, we didn't buy a timeshare. But they did manage to get us on the hook for like a trial period where we paid a very reasonable amount and got a certain like a couple trips worth of club points that we could use to try it on for size, you know, see if it fits. Unfortunately, uh, this meant we would have to sit through another timeshare presentation. So, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, this time in Florida. And the guy in Orlando who did our presentation, Jim, he... He looked really tough. He was really big and had a thick neck and a shaved head and a cleft chin. Looked kind of like maybe this was going to be the second half of a good cop, bad cop thing they were doing with us. But obviously, he didn't act like a hard-ass detective from a cop show because he wanted to sell us stuff. So he acted like he wanted to be my friend. And he called me things like my friend and buddy and stuff like that. And Jim started off by asking us our dream destinations because theoretically we could use our club points to go anywhere. So I, I said Hawaii because, I don't know, seems nice. And then I thought maybe everyone says Hawaii, so I should say something more interesting. So I also said, and Norway, you know, Scandinavia, I guess. And Jim said, ah, a big beach guy, huh? And... <laughs> I laughed because I assumed he was kidding, but I also said, well, fjords, you know, but just in case he wasn't, it, it wasn't really clear. Um, Jim moved on and he was he was asking us about our travel budget and what we typically spent on vacations and how much we spent on our last vacation and on each night for accommodations on our last trip. And when he would ask these things, he would he would direct them at me rather than at my wife. And. I don't know that stuff. I mean, she's she's the breadwinner. I, uh, you know, she plans the vacations. I can't be trusted with numbers. So when he would ask me these things, I would just defer to her. And Jim said, I get it, my friend. Happy wife, happy life is what I say. Apparently, this timeshare program allowed you to go to the 1950s. So that was that was impressive. But Jim told us about all the different properties they had everywhere and, and the newest resorts and all the amenities therein. And he was flipping through this book of photographs um, and he came to this two page spread of of green palm trees and golden sand and blue water. And he stopped and he said, ah, this this just beautiful. This is our brand new property in Barbados. You like Scandinavia. You're going to love this. <laughs> so, you know, that, that really begged the question, 
just where the fuck did he think Scandinavia was? Because I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to geography shame anybody. I would, I would maybe have trouble pinpointing Barbados on the map immediately if you asked me to. But I would say I have a general idea of what Barbados is that is fairly accurate. So I became just really preoccupied with this so much so that as Jim kept going with his presentation, I just was tuned out until he said something to me, and I would say, "I'm sorry, what?" And he would say, <laughs> happy wife, happy life, or, you know, or something like that. And there was a there was a monitor behind Jim that was cycling through a slideshow of all these beautiful color photos of countries where they had resorts, you know, postcard type images. And it was on about a 45 minute loop. It had gone through several times already because we were there a while. And, and so I knew what was coming back up. And as it was cycling through Europe, I was waiting on this one specific picture of a snowy town square in Sweden. And when it came up on the screen, I said, oh, you know, as if I hadn't been waiting on it. Oh, there's, there's Scandinavia right now. And Jim threw one quick glance over his shoulder, turned right back around and said, huh, how about that? And then just kept going completely unfazed. So that didn't clear anything up for me, but Jim didn't care because he was getting to the part where he was going to ask us to sign on the dotted line or join the family, as he put it. And, you know, going into this, this time, my wife and I made sure we were on the same page, you know, like we are not going to do this right at all. But Beyond that, we didn't really have much of a game plan other than I guess she was going to deal with the questions that required data and I would have to fend off the ones that required excuses. So when Jim asked if we were ready to sign up, I said, no, Jim, I just I just don't think this is for us. And he said, why is that? Walk me through your reasons. And I, I said, well, first of all, the, the expense is quite considerable. And he said, let me stop you right there. You've, you've already told me what you spend on vacations, what you spent on your last vacation. This is much less money in the long run. And I said, yeah, but, you know, I, I don't want to get stuck with this. And he said, what, what do you mean stuck? And I said, you know, tied down. I, I know there's a whole separate industry devoted to helping people get out of their timeshares. So it's got to be hard to do. You know, I, I don't want to get stuck with it. And he said, you're not going to get stuck. When you're ready to leave, we will buy back your timeshare from you. But you're not going to want to leave. And for every misgiving I had, he had a rebuttal. And this back and forth went on a little bit. At some point, Jim brought in a tag team partner named Roger, who I think was a like a manager sort. And he took some of the numbers Jim had given us and the timetables he laid out and some of the numbers we had given Jim. And he crunched them all in a, in a spreadsheet on an iPad. And it actually churned out lower costs than what Jim had already told us. And Jim said, what, really? And Roger said, I know, but that's what the machine's telling me. And Jim said, gosh, that's low. And, <laughs> you know, it seemed a little rehearsed. I, I don't think Jim was actually surprised, but... Jim and Roger kept offering better and better deals, and I kept mush-mouthing one excuse after another, and Jim kept following up with why, 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 and I was really kind of running out of answers, and I'm not really that assertive a person, and it didn't seem like we were ever going to leave without us ending up with a timeshare, um, until it occurred to me the escape hatch we needed was right there all along in my brain, both conceptually and literally, so... I took a deep breath, 
And I said, I, um, I've recently been diagnosed with a, uh, a health issue and, um, it's pretty, it's pretty serious. And, um, we don't really know what's going to happen with that. So, and you know, I wasn't lying, uh, you know, about my tumor. It is, it is under control. And I would normally say that it doesn't impact my day-to-day -day life, but in truth, um, you know, there's probably not a day that goes by that I don't think about it at some point. You know, it, the, the tumor could get bigger. The shunt could fail. Something else could go wrong. There's a there's a definite sense of waiting on the other shoe to drop kind of anxiety that comes with having a tumor benign or not. But they didn't need to know that. So, you know, I kept it vague, like it was maybe too much to really get into, just too complicated. I certainly didn't say brain tumor because that seemed unfair. You know, that seems like a unnecessary escalation, like a unwarranted, disproportionate, uh, you know, uh, the nuclear option, you know, brain tumor. But Jim, who had been calling me buddy up to this point, seamlessly switched over to calling me brother. And he said, brother? Don't you want to give your girls all the experiences you can? Make all the memories you can while you can? Dot, dot, dot. You know, the, the implication being before you die. And he seemed to think maybe it was going to be pretty soon. And then Roger helpfully jumped in and added that he was a lung cancer survivor and had found having uh, club points available to him to take vacations in soothing locales had been a real source of comfort during all that. Tumor one-upsmanship is really playing hardball. I, I hadn't anticipated this turning into a sick measuring contest, but here we were. You know, I, I, I couldn't top that. I, I'm sure there's a point in every timeshare presentation, some threshold they cross, where they realize they just need to cut bait and get you out of there so they can bring in the next folks. I don't know where this moment is, um, if they pass some signal to each other or something like that, wherever this point is, it is a disconcertingly and appallingly long span of time beyond the moment where serious illness and potential end of life issues begin to loom over the proceedings. I just tried to seem increasingly lost in thought, um, bordering on despondent, uh, staring into the middle distance, haunted by my as yet undisclosed illness and was less and less responsive to anything they said to me. I don't know if that's what finally wore them down or if they just ran out of time. But eventually we were able to leave. And as we left, uh, they expressed sympathy to me, possibly for the fact that I would spend what was left of my life without knowing the joys of timeshare partnership. But at least we had the rest of that day to pretend like we did. So we spent it all beside the pool at this fabulous resort that we'd gone through all this just to enjoy. And I like to think also maybe that Jim went and Googled Scandinavia. <laughs> Thank you. That was Jack Walsh. Jack Walsh is an award-winning educational television producer, as well as a writer, performer, storyteller, and synthesizer mess around with her. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. 
Next week, on February 7th, Story Collider will be at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver for a special show. As part of the Nature for All Storytelling Festival, the Story Collider is thrilled to be putting on an evening of true, personal stories about science that focus on the love of nature and how that love inspires us towards conservation. The show is also a side event at the 5th International Marine Protected Areas Congress. For more information and tickets, go to storycollider.org shows. Later this month, we'll also be in Atlanta, San Francisco, and Queens, New York. Again, that's storycollider.org shows for more details. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. In March, our science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez and education director Lily B. are hosting a seminar on story archaeology, where they help you dig deep and uncover memories that are core moments to stories. And soon, we're going to be launching public storytelling webinars. Our first webinar will be run by Foothill College biology professor and workshop advisory board member Jeff Shinsky. So keep an eye out for that and find out more at storycollider.org education. You can always follow us on social media at Story Collider. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the story collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Yeah. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Yeah. Our second story today is from Laura Fukumoto. It was recorded at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver, Canada in October 2022. The theme that night was mushrooms. My grandma says, Matsutake are among the top best mushrooms in the whole world. It's too expensive for us peasants. They say you can smell them in the forest. She also says that you have to sort of spit the t in matsutake to pronounce it correctly. So last fall, I was finally able to see my grandmother again in her care home in Toronto. And obviously I was showing her some mushroom photos when she asks me, hey, have you ever found those matsutakes in the forest? And I say, no, they're in the mountains, and I'm stuck in Vancouver all the time. 
And then she gets this faraway look in her eyes, and she says, Gee, I'd love to try those matsutakis again one more time. So I started learning to identify mushrooms about four years ago. Um, I think they're silly and beautiful, and sometimes they look like dicks and butts. Um, but uh, they bring me joy. I love learning to name them. So I have a theater degree, and I grew up in the suburbs. So it was very recently that I found out peas don't just come from a can. So learning to identify mushrooms was my first step towards learning about the world around me. I quickly found out mushrooms are really tricky. You have to get to know them like you're getting to know the face of a new best friend. What's their favorite season? What trees do they like to grow near? What do they look like when it's a drought? What do they look like after a torrential rain? So after doing some spore prints and messing around with some ID keys, I realized I needed a bit more help trying to identify mushrooms which is how I joined so many Facebook mushroom groups. Um, there are ID groups. Um, there's the Mushroom Social Club, no ID requests allowed. And there's also the group called Dumbass Mushrooms that don't know how to grow. Um, as we all know, every niche hobby has several niche subcultures. So. For mushrooms, there are foresters and there are foragers. There are subsistence hunters and scientists in these groups, but there's also the cottage core, the fairy core, um, Wookiees. Yes, this is in reference to Star Wars. Um, I think because uh, it's often someone with really long hair who's unshaven asking uh, where the magic mushrooms are. So. Generally speaking, I've found uh, mushroom people are very kind. They are extremely generous with their knowledge and their time, and we are all really weird. Um, I'm not a forager myself, but I started to seek out some foraged mushrooms at farmer's markets. Um, there are some mushrooms that you can't grow in controlled farming conditions because they're mycorrhizae. They grow in relationship to trees. So I was especially excited to try matsutake. Um, matsu means pine in Japanese. Um, it's very well known for its distinctive flavor, and it commands a billion-dollar-a-year industry. Um, it's very important as a gift, part of the gift-giving industry in Japan. Um, Mr. David Aurora, who is the writer of All the Rain Promises and More, describes Matsutake as smelling like cinnamon red hots mixed with dirty gym socks. Um, so one autumn day, a couple years ago, I finally found Matsutake at a farmer's market. So I bought one and I rushed it home so that I could start an experiment of my specimen, Tricholoma merleanum. So first things first, I held it to my nose and I gave a deep smell. Okay, I can definitely sense the idea of cinnamon. It's uh, a very full and pungent smell Kind of like some kind of animal. Okay, next I consider the color. The cap is a buff off-white color and there's patches of cinnamon brown on it. And 
I think maybe is that dirt, but no, I try to rub it off and it comes off with the skin. The stipe is very meaty and solid and I try to cut through it with my sharpest knife and it makes a lot of squeaking sounds as I try to get through it. Lastly, yes, there's the podzel soil. Podzel is kind of a gray ash color uh, because of the organic acids at a particular layer of the soil bleaching out the color. So once you know all of these details, like the face of a best friend, you could not possibly mix this mushroom up with any of the other less favorable, potentially poisonous lookalikes. The final part of my experiment was to eat the mushroom. So I cut the stipe and the cap up into thick, greedy slabs. And then I melted a gigantic knob of butter into a pan and I fried it to crispy perfection. And it's chewy. It's, uh, it's kind of rubbery. I can't really chew through it very easily, actually. And it tastes uh, a bit like overcooked octopus. This mushroom was like 25 bucks. So it turns out, I find out later that matsutake is like one of the only mushrooms in the world that doesn't taste great with butter. It just doesn't pair well with the fats. And it goes a lot better in uh, Asian recipes and Japanese recipes, soups, stews, um, like matsutake gohan, which is a rice dish I plan to make the next time I spent 25 bucks on a single mushroom. So fast forward to last fall, grandma, Toronto, care home. She asks me, have you ever found these matsutakes? So my grandma, here's the thing about my grandma Kay. She gets very embarrassed when I talk about her. One time she was featured in the Toronto Star for being a good Samaritan. And she got a two page spread that was just a picture of her and she absolutely hated it. Um, it was really cute. It was very good. Um, but uh, sorry, Grandma Kay, I'm talking about you publicly again. Um, so my Grandma Kay was born in Prince Rupert, British Columbia in 1921. And she was 19 years old when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. In 1942, 22,000 Japanese Canadians were displaced from a 100-mile exclusion zone along the West Coast. My grandma traveled by train for three days to Hastings Park, which is today's Peony Playland. And there she lived in a barn for close to a year. After that, she and her family moved to the Slocan Valley, where Japanese Canadians lived in abandoned mining towns. And in 1946, my family left British Columbia forever. So I tell you all of this because at the moment, my 100-year-old grandmother said she wanted to eat matsutake again. It occurred to me that maybe she used to forage matsutake at a time when food was scarce. Maybe my grandma hasn't had matsutake since 1946. So I have to get this goddamn mushroom to my grandma. It's fall. I'm in Vancouver, they're in season. Can I get this mushroom in a box and get it through Canada Post in maybe one or two days? But then I imagine trying to explain why there's a crushed mushroom uh, to my grandma over the phone, so that's not gonna work. 
then I think maybe I'll try DoorDash. Maybe there's an Asian restaurant somewhere in Toronto that has matsutake on the menu. And like 20 restaurants later, I am just hungry and out of luck. So that same week, uh, I have a new coworker, and she also happens to be Japanese-Canadian. And I mentioned my side quest to her. She says to me, oh, I have like 100 matsutake in the deep freezer because my aunt forages them. Do you want one? I think, oh, is this my solution? But no, my grandma deserves a fresh, not frozen mushroom. And there's still the issue of how to get the mushroom to her in Toronto. So I turned to the Facebook hive mind. I type, how do I get my 100-year-old grandma Matsutake pick of Jima for the algorithm? It was a really cute picture of her holding a bottle of champagne, by the way. And then I wait. Within 24 hours, the mushroom people responded. My post was liked and shared more than 600 times in that time period. Dozens, dozens of people offered to drive Matsutake to her front door. When I asked, where are you located? All of them said Central Oregon. <laughs> and so I kindly thanked them for offering to drive to Toronto and really wondered about their sense of geography. Finally, Mr. David Aurora himself commented on my post, and I cannot remember what he said, but basically I felt extremely blessed by the mushroom gods. So on a recommendation from one of these comments, I found a company that will overnight, same day ship uh, fresh matsutake to anywhere in the greater Toronto area. At this point I realized I have to get my dad involved. My dad is a very good cook, and my grandma doesn't cook much these days, being 100, but I had to call up my dad. I said to him, Dad, you have one job in life, and it is to cook Grandma Matsutake Gohan. So my dad is the kind of Asian dad who asks for a fork at the Chinese restaurant, so the ingredients list was extremely intimidating. What's Mitsuba? What is dashi? And I won't tell you how much money I spent shipping every last ingredient to his front door, because I'm a working lady, but many tense phone, call phone calls followed. What do I do with this mushroom? How do I clean it? How thin do I cut it? Why did you buy a whole kilogram of matsutake? I only need one or two. It was a very good deal, and you know. Got him a whole kilogram because it was for grandma. So many tense phone calls later. Finally, I get the one phone call that matters. They did it. They cooked the recipe. Short grain white rice. Rinse it until the cold water runs clear. Shoyu, dashi, mirin. I'll go into the rice pot. Make sure that... The matsutake is clean, slice it thinly, let it float on top, lid on, let it all stew down and fill your house with the amazing aroma. In the pictures, my grandma has a kind of twinkle in her eye after eating two big helpings. 
that very same week, my coworker gifts me a matsutake and I make us matsutake gohan as well. I couldn't read the labels at Fujia, so I accidentally got dark dashi, so it turned out a little salty, and I maybe accidentally got sushi rice, so it was a little sticky, but the mirin has this kind of sweetness to it, and uh, the fishy taste of dashi lifts the very particular taste of matsutake to the top, and there's a crunch to the mushroom even after being cooked for so long. The taste of this dish makes me miss my grandma, even though we've never eaten it together. I love my grandma, and I really love mushrooms. Mushroom people know that they are gifts of sustenance and gifts of humor. Mushrooms are for poking and squishing, and they're also for gazing at in wonder. They are as diverse and plentiful as our own stories, as our bodies and our journeys. And most importantly, mushrooms are for sharing. Thank you. That was Laura Fukumoto. Laura Fukumoto graduated with a BFA from the University of British Columbia and has worked in so-called Vancouver for more than a decade, wearing many hats to survive. More recent hats include fabric wizard, poet, costume designer, playwright, and graduate of Simon Fraser University's Writer's Studio. She writes about her Japanese-Canadian heritage, queer joy, and hopes to more fully explore her love of mycology. The Story Collider is so grateful to Jack and Laura for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to our Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Education Director Lily B., Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and our Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Kelly Vinyl and Mesa Salida, and by Charlie Cook and Josh Silberg, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. And next week, I'll be back with some romantic stories just in time for Valentine's Day. Until then, thanks for listening. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.